Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Sue Armstrong about the importance of the gut microbiome. Sue qualified from Cambridge Veterinary School in England in 1984, worked first in Oxford and then in a partnership in Leeds for 12 years. In 2003, she set up Balanced Being, an alternative veterinary and human medicine practice, and in 2016, she established a new human clinic in Boroughbridge. She was a founding member of the British Holistic Veterinary Medicine Association and has written and published many papers, contributed to several books and lectured and consulted internationally. Hello, Sue, and thank you so much for joining us on the Pure Animal podcast all the way from the UK. I know it's early in the morning there for you on a Friday and it's just finishing our Friday here. So we're welcoming the weekend after this conversation, which is nice. How are you going today? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a really horrible rainy day here, so oh. <laughs> it, it's lovely to be talking to you. Oh, well, it's not much better here. We've had, uh, I don't know if you follow Australian news or weather, but we've had uh, an Arctic change come through from the south. Oh. So it's been really windy today and in the snowfields down in Victoria and New South Wales, they've had a feels-like temperature with the wind chill of negative 20 Celsius, which is quite oh remarkable <laughs> for Australia. Yeah, yesterday was about 23 and today it's about 17 in Sydney, but with the wind a lot colder. <laughs> so not much better than the UK at the moment. <laughs> um, well, so I've shared with our listeners a bit of your background and um, some of your amazing achievements in your career so far, but I'd really love to hear about what inspired you to become a vet and particularly what piqued your interest in alternative and integrative medicine. And I know that you've worked with humans and animals, so I'd be really interested to hear about your journey. Okay. Yeah, well, I was... Single figures, really, when I, I decided that it's what I wanted to do. I didn't, obviously, as a little kid, know what it was going to entail when I got to be this age. But um, mm-hmm. I, from a really, really early age, hated the way that um, I, I felt that humans exploited animals and misunderstood them. Mm. totally misunderstood them and of course um you know I'm I'm getting on in years now and so I'm going back into the, the when I was a child uh, animals were really pretty much dominated by certainly the people in the in the west and and mm. even the, you know the dogs and the cats you owned them but you it was an ownership rather than a, a partnership with an animal and I really didn't like that right from mm. the beginning yeah yeah that's really sad yeah, so I I really was just a tiny wee thing when I thought right that my my life is about doing something oh, to give back, how to lovely. give back, and that's and that's what I wanted to do, and that's what I, I stuck out to do. Yeah, and uh, became a conventional vet, obviously because you had no choice. Mm-hmm. But very very quickly thought, oh my goodness, is this really it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, this, is this what I spent? six years training to do Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is we would have so many named diseases 
that, you know, we had lovely textbooks. We'd learned all this amazing knowledge, so, so-called factual knowledge that, of course, as we all know now, changes virtually every minute of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we were just stuck with such limited ways to treat these animals. And, um, and people would come out with incredible um, depths of information for us, like, you know, little Johnny would be sick at five o'clock in the afternoon and or this animal is worse when it gets cold and um, what does it mean if, mm. if if my dog wants to go and do such and such a thing? Yeah. And we had nothing on the shelf that answered that, yeah. nothing at all. Yeah. Um, so it was it was quest time and just looking for what else was out there that might actually solve some of these problems that Mm. I was seeing on a daily basis. Mm. What was your first sort of taste of of actually learning and utilising some of these alternative therapies? Um, What sort of started it all off for you? Well, I I think what is common to so many people is actually personal experience. Mm, Um, And it was a personal thing that I, I was lucky enough to have have got a job in a in a clinic with um, an amazing veterinary homeopath uh, that, that many people might recognise that know about homeopathy, for example. Mm-hmm. And this was a vet called John Saxton, mm-hmm. and um, he I was a, in practice and I had a cartilage issue and had been born with a cartilage defect okay. and was was struggling. Yeah. I instinctively knew that um, having a knee replacement later in life and taking painkillers for all of my years was not going to be the the answer. So I'd already got an innate understanding that that was not what I was going to do. Mm. But I was in trouble. And uh, it was it was that veterinary surgeon who said, you know, are you going to accept any help from me? <laughs> because you, you're in trouble. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I, I, I reluctantly gave in and, and, and tried a couple of different things that it completely blew my mind. Right. Okay. So it was personal experience, and then with my own children, it was experience with them, and and of course, then it was my goodness. If I can do this, if I can experience this for myself, what could this be doing? What could we do with this for the animals? Yeah. When that that was the beginning of it. Yeah, that's so exciting. And did you have to do any further study in the fields of alternative <laughs> medicine, or was it oh, sort yeah. of learning on the job? Both, both. Um, I mean, huge amounts of extra study, mm. huge amounts of extra study. I yeah. studied homeopathy for four plus years oh, wow. and, and then again to do the human side of it and acupuncture. Mm-hmm. and and. But a lot of the other things, a lot of the other things like low-level laser therapy that I use a lot and, and actually understanding nutrition, mm-hmm. um, a lot of that was learned literally on the hoof and, and, and trying to get in front of people that were using things so learning from other colleagues yeah. and and then and recently it's been very much with with functional medicine and mm-hmm. and issues like the microbiome mm-hmm. is learning from the human side because we're way behind in veterinary medicine yes i know it's very frustrating sometimes isn't it yeah very yeah but it's great that we can borrow from human medicine and research a lot of the times because there's so many similarities 
It's just yes. finding that solid evidence in pets, which a lot of people need to be able to believe in something. Unfortunately, but even though there's so much anecdotal evidence and so much evidence in people, there are some people out there who just need to see the paper written in the species that they're treating. Yes, they do. And this is an enormous problem mm-hmm. because of, of there's so few of us in, in you know to- in the world mm-hmm. really who are uh, dedicated to alternative medicine and complementary medicine alongside complement uh, conventional or orthodox treatments yeah that it's really hard to get the quality of research and the funding for research and the time for research yeah so actually getting getting the evidence that the orthodox world wants is is a massive problem. Yeah, I agree. It's it's yeah. I mean it's a I work as a technical services vet and it is and I and I find it frustrating every single day because if you yeah. if you even start to delve which I'm sure that you do all the time into the human literature you're just it's a bounty of <laughs> of beautiful <laughs> studies and systematic reviews and and there's just such a little amount compared um, in the veterinary world. So it's a, it's a shame. Hopefully we can see things start to change in the future. Yeah, it's, good. it's difficult to know how, mm. how it will change yeah. because it, it, it's almost like a funnel shape. Yeah. And that, that this, this end of it is so small compared yeah. to, for example, the money that's poured into pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. It, it, it's where does that where does that revenue where does that resource come from yeah. to satisfy the needs of 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 the evidence base community mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it it's toughy it's yeah. toughy to see how it will change yeah it is yeah it's it's sad in a way but hopefully we can start to see little by little things coming out and the more anecdotal evidence that is accumulated over the years and from yeah. pe- people's individual experiences then yeah. Hopefully we can start to change things that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sue, so, so I know that you've spent many years in practice. Um, how, during that time, have you developed certain strong interests in particular conditions? I, I know that you've mentioned that you've done further training in homeopathy and acupuncture, so obviously you like to use those modalities. But certain health conditions, do they draw you in more than others? Oh, yes. I, uh, without doubt, cancer was a huge thing for me. Mm. Um, and cancer, and then it became autoimmune disease and mm-hmm. cancer because they are connected. Yes. So um, chronic chronic diseases, chronic diseases, yeah. all, of, all of this huge bundle of... Um, Again, we were sticking all these names and syndromes and and crazy titles on on illnesses that were coming up in front of us. But actually, they it was it was the study of those and starting to look at. Hang on a minute, these all look very similar, mm. but they've all got the immune system underneath them that is in trouble in mm-hmm. some way or another. Yeah, and um, so this has been really probably the last twenty years of my career oh, wow. has been focused on on chronic disease and particularly cancer and autoimmunity. And are you finding that you're using particular alternative therapies more than others in these conditions? Are you using a lot of herbal medicine or are you just really combining sort of everything that you can to try and give the patient the best results? Yeah, I think it's individualisation and it's a really moving feast as well as we learn 
because the more the this is this whole area as you all know is is moving so fast yes in terms of our, our now our understanding that we should have had right from the beginning really if we just kept paying attention to the animals yeah. <laughs> because they've yeah. been telling us all along yeah. um you know we've watched dogs eat soil chew sticks eat but dead things in the you know on the road and not get sick and then mm. we are wandering around going oh my goodness, we've got to be killing everything inside. I know. Otherwise we're going to die. Yeah. And it, it was all in front of our noses the whole time. Yeah. You know, what we what we really needed to do. And so in terms of what treatment modalities we use, it it's changing. I, I use a lot of, everything I do is integrative and mm-hmm. everything I do is um, as individualized as I possibly can get it. Yeah. Which is much easier in, in humans than it is in animals because mm-hmm. the test not really there, yeah. but functional medicine testing in, in in humans now is phenomenal. Yes, yeah, changed the whole scene because you can actually find out what the biochemistry is up to as well as the energy body. So it's yeah. so exciting in yeah. humans, and we'll slowly get there in in animals. But certainly, I use a lot of um, homeopathy as mm-hmm. an underpin because it has a philosophy of medicine. Mm-hmm. It has an understanding of disease. Mm-hmm. I'd use acupuncture I use laser mm-hmm. um, in inflammation inflammatory disease um it's definitely nutrition number one yes. nutrition number one has yeah. to be yeah in my opinion yeah yeah and drugs and drugs come last pharmaceutical yeah. drugs come last they're last resort yeah they really are last resort in yeah. most cases and there is i mean there are going to be those cases where they are required and that's the beauty Absolutely. of integrative medicine isn't it is that you really try and yeah throw as much as you can at the condition using as many different avenues as you can and trying to do it in the safest and gentlest way to support the animal to heal, you know, on its Absolutely. own. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is, I definitely don't um, diss all orthodox medicine no. at all. No. I'm still a veterinary surgeon. Yeah. And, um, you know, surgery itself, when it's needed, is the most honest of veterinary medicine mm. and, and surgery of all. Mm-hmm. You know that because if you've got a foreign body and it's stuck, surgery is the way. It's the to only deal way. With it. Yeah, it's the only way to yeah. deal with it. And you know, if you have a completely non-functional thyroid, you may have to replace the thyroid hormone with yeah. with replacement. It's so there, there's good things in orthodox medicine, and um, for sure. And it is finding, the, as you say, the gentlest and safest way, yeah. always with a view to the long term, not just the immediacy of that condition in front of you today. You know, the yeah. quick fix. Let's yeah. get rid of. Let's get rid of all those symptoms so we can't see them. Yeah. Um, and then everybody's happy. Yeah. And regardless of whether two years down the line that animal's going to crash. Yeah. So it's always looking at this bigger picture. Yeah. And, and helping. Um, guardians of of animals to understand that we have to look at tomorrow as well as today. Yeah, no, I really like that. That's a really important approach to take and for us as well as as humans, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, Well, Sue, I know that you mentioned that you really love autoimmune diseases and cancer and chronic illnesses, but I know that a lot of research, particularly recently, has been around the importance of uh, digestive health and gut health, and particularly the microbiome. Are you able to share with us 
a little bit about what your thoughts are on how the the health of the gut and the microbiome have a role in all conditions and particularly the ones that you are interested in as well? Yeah, it's, I mean, the microbiome is, is just fundamental to us, to, mm. to, to the health of every living thing on this planet. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's only, you know, humans have just got themselves into such a mess in yeah. the last few hundred years because we've adopted this superiority complex where we think we're separate from nature. And that's where we've got ourselves into such a load of trouble. Yeah. And, so gut health and microbial health, and of course that doesn't just mean bacteria, as you know. That mm-hmm. we have viruses, we have fungi mm-hmm. that are all commensals that we re- we need, and our animals need to live a healthy life. Mm-hmm. And they are they are they have evolved with us, they, with our animals. They are part of us. We can't live without them. Mm-hmm. And we're in our cells and our animal cells are in constant communication the whole time with the organisms that are part of the the whole of us. Yeah. So it's so they are totally fundamental to being healthy, and we've done so many things to to ourselves and our animals to um, undermine that connection. And so the the food that we've ended up eating the drugs we take that mm. constantly undermine the health of our microbiome yeah. and so if we don't have a healthy microbiome we end up with all that plethora of of chronic diseases that's that's really the basis of the whole lot of them yeah for, for sure and so just some more specifics then what are the things that we and our pets have been ingesting in our diets that have been upsetting the balance of the microbiome? Is it the focus on refined carbohydrates and sugar, vegetable oils, things like that, the lack of fibre, or is there is there anything else there that we've really sort of made a mistake on? Yeah, it, it, all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> all of those things. It, yeah. it literally, we have drifted off of species-appropriate food mm. and 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 of course there is a reality check in amongst all of it that we with urbanization we we're away from the land we're away from the food sources that that are local to us the the soil organisms that are local to us so we we we've, we've drifted we've drifted away from that connectivity so it's mm-hmm. made it much harder and certainly in urban environments it's much much harder to actually get that really good connection between the food we eat and our health and our animals health so yes it is that if we the more we can get back to species appropriate food away from preservatives away from colorants away from animals that within the diet the meat proteins within the diet that themselves are laden with antibiotics or you name it, chemicals, mm-hmm. toxic Hormones. chemicals. Yeah. And of course, what those animals, if we if we are feeding a herbivore to our dogs and cats, for example, you know, what, what has that herbivore been fed on? Yeah. Because it should have been fed on herbs. Grass. It should have been <laughs> fed on grasses and, and pasture, mm-hmm. whereas so many of them are then fed on grains Grains. and corn and this kind of stuff, which is in itself causing trouble. So we can think we're doing species-appropriate food, but we may not know the source of 
that food itself, even though it looks right. Yeah. So we we've got to get right stripped back to what each species gut and right from the start of the teeth, the dentition, the length of the GI tract, what the stomach's designed to do. We have to feed the food that is that species needs to then get keep the, the microbiome in as healthy a state as possible. Mm. So the minute we drift away from species appropriate, we're challenging and stressing the microbiome. And we've we've done that so spectacularly with processed pet food. Yeah. And because we have a need for it, I you know, we've got so many animals, we've got so many urban animals, we've got people with different income levels. Lack of time. So there, there may be a yeah. need for it, but we still have to understand the consequences of it. Yeah. And so do you feel, I, I've heard that uh, I completely agree with everything you're saying and definitely for myself, I don't have a dog or a cat, but if I did, I would be <laughs> practicing what you're preaching. Um, but for, for myself, I certainly uh, try to limit all of those things <laughs> that we've been talking yes. about. So I completely agree. But I have heard some people sort of challenge that notion with the fact, well, haven't humans and domestic animals evolved to be able to tolerate a higher grain diet, a more processed diet, and therefore hasn't their microbiome evolved to be able to tolerate that? But how long does it take for either us or a domestic dog or a cat to actually evolve to not need that original species-appropriate diet that they particularly uh, required from the start, like you said? Yeah, well, it's really contentious because, yeah. I mean, the speed of change is is, is so much faster than than evolution can keep up with. Yeah. I mean, we 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 certainly do have. We know, for example, that um, the pancreas of the domestic dog now does produce um, amylases to break down starch. Mm. So, where, whereas in theory, in, in, if you go back to wolf, if that that the, there was hardly any any capacity to break mm. down starches and grains. Yeah. So there has been some evolutionary change. Yeah. There, for sure, there has. Yeah. Um, and dogs are inveterate scavengers. You know, you look at the street urban street dogs, they can live off absolutely Scraps. anything they scavenge yeah. and find. Yeah. And they don't die. Do they have optimal well they do do eventually, but they <laughs> do they have optimal health? Probably, Probably not. not. Yeah. Do they have diseases? Yes, they do. Mm. Um so it's about optimal health and and also in terms of uh, evolution. Mm. I, I have a German Shepherd, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at his dentition, that dentition has not evolved no. at all. Yeah, it hasn't evolved. It, no. it, it's a dentition designed for meat and bone, mm -hmm. and and it it doesn't have a grinding surface. He can't laterally use his jaws. He can't. You know, he doesn't. He's not equipped. He hasn't suddenly changed his dentition. Mm. He hasn't elongated his gut length, mm. so he still has a short GI tract. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't looked at it. Look, <laughs> generally, they still have a very short GI tract. Yeah, they still should have a very high pH acidic stomach to break down the protein. To break down proteins and mm -hmm. and bone, mm -hmm. and so the the yes they have evolved to be able to cope in our environment, 
that's a different thing to saying what is optimal oh, for yeah. health. Coping and thriving are completely opposite ends of the spectrum, aren't they? Totally different. Yeah. Totally yep. different. Yeah, that's so really yes, interesting. So yes, they can eat grain. Um, they, can, they can eat grains. They can eat vegetarian diets. They can eat... But it, it's like, so can we. We can live on burgers and and we can live on um, ice cream and, and buns, burger mm-hmm. buns, if we want to. Will we be healthy? Probably not. Mm, yeah. So it's about it's it's yes. I I totally get the argument that that dogs have changed over time because they live with us. But it is how can we optimize? Mm. How can we get their health as good as we possibly mm. can? And you know, it's really interesting. I didn't actually realize. Uh, it shows my ignorance, I guess, that previously dogs weren't able to digest any starch because of the lack of amylase from their pancreas. But I do know that they they don't have any amylase in their saliva, which humans do. So that part yeah, of them that, still hasn't. Yeah, although that's changing. It that, is? That's oh, another okay. one of the arguments. Right. Yeah, okay. that's one of the other arguments that if you that, that um, it was always in the, the textbooks that dogs do not have salivary amylase, mm. whereas actually when they've been looking for it in recent studies, it's that it is there. Oh, it's right. Not, it's, it's not in the high quantities that we have it, yeah. Um, because they don't they don't start their digestion in the mouth as we do, mm. you know. Because we're we, we're always taught, aren't we, about chewing? chewing. <laughs> yeah, so we're breaking it all down before we swallow. <sighs> well, you look at the average dog; it doesn't stay in the mouth more than no. seconds. It's it, it's inhaled. It, yeah, it's inhaled, yeah. and digestion really in the dog starts in the stomach. Yeah. Whereas in the human, it starts in the mouth. Okay. So yeah, but they are there. So there is some adaptation through yeah. evolution. That's interesting. That are are becoming apparent. So um, it, there are there are some changes, but not significant no. enough. No. To, to say to, that to we, warrant the cereal based diets. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Sure. And you only have to look at their teeth and dental disease to know what that does. Absolutely. Yeah, I've never actually thought, I love this discussion, I've never actually thought the fact that a dog's teeth, because they often teach us in veterinary school that a dog's digestive system is really quite similar to a person's, a human's, but when you look at the dentition, it is completely different. We have uh, Uh molars. I mean, so it really goes to show that humans are actually adapted historically to be able to eat a higher fiber, perhaps higher grain, I don't know what your opinion about that is, diet based on our dentition. I've, I've never actually sort of put the two and two together. <laughs> yeah, and fiber, because we, we have surfaces on our teeth that can that can actually grind yeah. uh, plant matter yeah. in a better way than a, than a dog ever can. A dog can't. A dog actually cannot grind. Yeah. doesn't have a grinding surface in its dentition. Yeah. Um, and, of course, my German Shepherd is a very different creature to some of the flat-nosed, the brachycephalic yeah. that we've got going now. So there are some breed differences where we have bred animals and we've bred dogs to actually not be designed to eat much at all. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we've changed yeah. their dentition so badly. Yeah. Um, but uh, by and large, the, the the dog's evolution has not, in, it, in its anatomy and physiology, kept step with modern uh, ideas about, well, we can feed them just about anything. Mm. And when we think about the microbiome and the fact that it, it most likely hasn't 
really evolved too much from when a dog first originated as a wolf. What, what do you think about the notion that dogs are omnivorous? If they don't have that dentition and um, to break down the fibre, but people still encouraging dogs to eat plant matter. What are your thoughts on that? Do you feed your dog and do you recommend dogs have vegetables and plant matter in their diet or are you really focusing on sort of meat and bones primarily? Um, I think we have to, again, go back to what a dog would do. Mm. Um, if, if a dog is eating a rabbit, it, one of the things we don't put in diet is, is fur and mm. skin, which mm-hmm. in the same, same way of a feather. Um, and and gut content. You know, if a mm. dog eats a rabbit, it will invariably eat some gut content yes. if it doesn't eat all of it. Yeah. And the same if it brings down a, a sheep or yeah. whatever. It will yeah. it will take some gut content. It will take offal. Yeah. Some dogs will self pick berries. Mm-hmm. Some dogs will choose fresh, you know, the tips of grass, especially when the sugars are high. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they'll eat grass for different reasons, but they'll take the tips in the spring when we've got good sugars in mm-hmm. the grass tips. So animals, dogs will will eat small amount of vegetable matter that's pars- mostly partially digested mm-hmm. in prey animal. Mm-hmm. So they, they know they can't dig- break down cellulose cell walls. So what do they do? They're clever, innate. They know that if they eat gut content, mm-hmm. that's already partially already digested done. Yep. with bacteria yeah. provided by the prey animal. Nature's probiotics. But their own probiotics. Mm. So they are eating that in nature. Mm. So they don't just spill the gut contents, leave that to one side and just eat the meat. Mm-hmm. So when I think if we are going, going down the, oh, yeah, but dogs only eat meat and bone, we're selling them short mm. because that's not, true if mm-hmm. we look at what dogs really do with a carcass mm. okay there's always a small amount of of vegetable matter involved in that meal at yep. some point even if it's not every meal yeah because they might just take a piece of meat and bone which is fine but but somewhere along the line within a cycle within their their overall nutrition they will take in small amounts of of fruit and herbage even if it's only through, and even grain, even grain, mm. it, even if it is it, because it's through what the gun, gut content of their prey animals are. Yeah, no, that's great. And do you feel that that is important for the microbiome? Because I know that fibre is such an important food source for the bacteria that live in the large intestine. Yes, I do. I think it is. Imp- it is important. Less so if the bone content is good in terms of fibre, because bone in Prime in carnivores, when you're looking at the cat, for example, yes. that eats hardly any. It does does eat again in the in, when it eats a mouse. When a cat eats a mouse, it will take in a small amount of herbage through mm-hmm. gut content. Yeah. So they're still eating some diverse. They're still taking in a little bit of diversity within gut content of prey animal in cats in 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 the, in the felids. But you know, it's it again back back into that the bone actually provides a lot of that support. That, right, that, I didn't know that that matrix support. If bone is in the diet, okay. But a small amount of fibers will feed different types of bacteria. Yeah. So it's all again about biodiversity, yeah. uh, div- microbial diversity in the gut, which is really important. Yeah. And that's those fibers, those fiber foods are incredibly important, as we know in the human. Yes. 
But we're very, very early stages of knowing how much fiber is really necessary to maintain good microbial diversity in the dog and the cat. Mm. Um, and cats being sort of the ultimate carnivore. Absolutely. And so you're, in your opinion, just comparing humans and dogs and cats, and also given the nature of the dentition differences, a human is evolved to have a much, much higher fibre diet and perhaps a lower protein diet compared to a domestic dog or cat? Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yes, I do. I think, and so we're still so early on in the understanding of the differences in the microbiome um, that go alongside that. So what mm. is a healthy mi- microbiome in a human may not be the healthy microbiome required for a cat, mm. an obligate carnivore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then the dog sits somewhere in the middle. Yeah. As they've evolved with us, they are much more omnivorous than they were before. But what is really optimally healthy for a dog? And we, we don't yet fully know that. There yeah. are studies out there. They yeah. are being done. But it's it's baby steps. We're yeah. on step one. And do you utilise any supplemental probiotics or prebiotics in your practice? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And again, this is this is a whole field mm. which is which is changing daily. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. changing daily. Yeah. Because, you know, the old days were everybody had some acidophilus and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was, you know, let's let's give a give everything that moves acidophilus. Um and now we know that that's that's not the right thing to do. Um and so we have to start tailoring the the probiotics and the prebiotics, and I think prebiotics are very important mm-hmm. um, to the individual issue that's in front of us, which we're getting better at doing in humans. Mm-hmm. And again, we are super baby steps yeah. in animals. Yeah, in, in in being able to tailor it. But I do, I do use them, and um, in much more diverse situations than most. Uh, orthodox vets would, you mm-hmm. know, for example, we would be using a probiotic in in liver disease, and we'd be right. using it in kidney disease. Okay, because we now know that the the gut microbiome gets in, uh, involved in every disease that involves inflammation, really, yeah. Yeah. and involves immune issues. And are you utilising them in cases of respiratory conditions? Because I know there's some early research to suggest that an oral probiotic can influence the diversity of the respiratory tract microbial population yes. in cats. Yes, and the same as, um, so respiratory and then the other end in bladder conditions. You know, mm, when you've got yes. animals with, you know, recurrent issues with um, cystitis, mm-hmm. and sterile cystitis. Mm-hmm. So actually, to be honest, you have to address the microbiome in every condition. In everything, yeah. Well, yeah. They, what is, Hippocrates always said that everything starts in the gut, so he was yep. completely right. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Wasn't he just? <laughs> he was. Something I'm really interested in, and I know this is new emerging research in people that's really sort of gone gangbusters lately, is the link between mental health and the microbiome. Do you utilise, I mean, you probably do because you utilise them for everything, (laughs) but do you see any 
anecdotal evidence, I would guess, in your practice. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if you see many behaviour cases, but say a patient came in with um, an anxiety condition. Do you ever reach for probiotics in those? And have you seen, if you have, have you seen any benefits? Uh, yes and yes yep. is the answer Excellent. to that. So exciting. Um, yeah, no, very much so. Mm. Um, as you've just said, this is a hugely, hugely important area and it's um, the, the, um, an incredible book, The Psychobiotic Revolution, Scott Anderson's book, which yeah. is, um, a, I think, it's a really good read mm-hmm. on that subject. I think it's such a good, it's got some very good studies in it that yeah. um, that it shows on the human side of it where um for example they've they've done rat studies where they've been doing fecal trans fecal um, implants from humans with depression they've given that to rats happy healthy rats and rats have then become depressed right. and they've done all sorts of different tests in this way different different experiments research experiments to look at um how the microbiome and and the mind relate and of course we know that certain bacteria in the in the microbiome um, produce neurotransmitters. Mm. So neurotransmitters like serotonin and GABA and mm. dopamine. Yeah. So makes th- sense. this link is so important, mm. so important. And we also know that whatever disease we we have or our dogs have, it involves a mental emotional component. Mm. So if, if you've got inflammation or you've got cancer or you not always but some some of the time if you've got disease often your mental emotional state changes Mm. Um, so wherever we see an an emotional shift with a chronic disease there is likely to be a microbial microbial dysfunction somewhere Mm. imbalance somewhere yeah so that's where alongside other modalities, like in my case, I use homeopathy a lot, mm-hmm. yeah. um, to address that mental emotional state change. I would also be looking at we've got problems in the microbiome, yeah. so that's where we sh- that's where I will reach for different probiotics yeah. um, and or diet changes yeah. to see if we can feed the right bacteria to start getting those changes to to be corrected. And without doubt, we've seen it. Yeah, right. I mean. It, it, it's so hard to know to attribute which component mm. of a treatment program has made the shift. Yeah. Um, but if we're seeing a mental emotional change through a diet change and a probiotic, then it, it's kind of reinforcing this whole notion of, yeah. of connection. Yeah. Well, it makes t- total sense because I think the stats are something like 60 or 70% of neurotransmitters are produced in the gut. So in the serotonin, gut, GABA, dopamine, everything. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So really yes. we've just got to nurture that gut as much as we can. <laughs> we <laughs> certainly do. It's the, it's, it's the focus. It's yeah. where we should be focusing yeah. at the beginning of our therapies yeah. when we're looking at chronic disease, in my opinion. And in terms of differences between human and dog and cat, Microbiomes. I know that you've mentioned that it's still early days with research, but when we're looking at using probiotic strains, I know there's only a few strains on the market that are sort of readily available to use as a probiotic treatment. 
Do you, how do you feel about using strains, sort of like a human product for dogs and cats? Do you feel that they necessarily have to be specific to the species that you're treating? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, there's been some studies. Um, there, there are some published studies out there on IBD, for example, where yep. they've used some of the, 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 the human mixes yep. that are out there. But again, so no, it doesn't have to be. The, the bacteria, we do share quite a lot of common common bacteria. So we're all living in the same soup. Yeah. So there are, there are quite a lot of commonalities. So it's, we don't have to have purely, you know, dogs, dog specific um, bacteria, mm-hmm. but it's, it is trying to get a better handle on what, what mixes make the difference. And this is back to our original thing about evidence base, because mm. there's some of those studies have shown that certain of the human mixtures make absolutely no difference in, in research conditions to IBD in dogs, for example, mm-hmm. whereas other um, mixes along with prebiotics have made significant, um, yeah. statistically significant differences. So, yeah. unfortunately, it's that we are, we just don't know enough. Yeah, we just, just don't know space. enough yeah. at the moment. But yeah. it is definitely watch this space. Yeah, and there are some really interesting um, pieces of research now being done in dogs around the world. There's a company in Canada that's been doing some work on a, a canine specific. Um, probiotic, prebiotic mix. There is some work done in Finland that's mm-hmm. really interesting. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, it's it, all in dogs. So this is starting yeah. to actually bubble up. We'll, yeah, we'll be great. seeing more within the next few years, I'm sure. Yeah, no, that's excellent. And do you feel that using a, a multi-strain probiotic as opposed to a single strain is more beneficial? Because I know there's a lot of discussion about that as well. By and large, yes, mm-hmm. yes, I do. There are some. There, there is again some evidence on the. Um, it's not a bacterial this one, but Saccharomyces boulardii, mm-hmm. which is yep. um, a, a, a probiotic used in humans. Can which is one of the only single strains that I think is can be very useful in certain circumstances mm-hmm. in animals. In, mm-hmm. um, but. I think always it's better to use multi-strain because we're looking with probiotics for to get different activities out of those probiotics. Uh, so it might be that they're improving um, the, the the mucosa. It might be that they're reducing toxin load. They might have antibiotic properties in their own right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're looking for different things within that mix of bacteria that we're using. And because we don't know enough about what's happening in the microbiome of most dogs, we're going to, the chances are we'll get a better hit if we've got a mix of what those different probiotic strains are capable of doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I think I I prefer, well, I do. I don't think I prefer. I do prefer (laughs) um, in my my practice using multi-strain. Multi-strain. Yeah. No, that makes sense. You're sort of covering all your bases, really. Yeah. Until we know more. Yeah. Until we know more. Yeah. I think it's just because we're at that 
baby steps. Yeah. And you're always using a prebiotic as well. And if you are, sort of two-part question, if you are using a prebiotic, mm-hmm. are you using a prebiotic in the form of certain whole food fibres that are part of the diet or are you using a more of a manufactured prebiotic such as inulin? Um, yeah, it depends. It, it, again, it depends on what we're dealing with because we have to be a little bit careful with some of the um, upper gut, the small intestinal issues. That mm-hmm. we, if we do too much loading with things like inulin, then we are going to cause more trouble mm-hmm. because we can get too much fermentation going on and, yep. and the, again, actually feed all the wrong bacteria. So, yeah. Um, it is very speci- it is very case specific yeah. that where I will and won't use um prebiotics. I think if we can do it with a little bit of diet, little bit of um vegetable matter fiber that mm-hmm. that's often better. Mm-hmm. So it just just tweaking particularly in animals that may have a diet where that's been restricted and people haven't been giving that at all. I think mm. that's the better way to go. Yeah. And also looking at um, again, what kind of what kind of prebiotic genuinely would a dog seek? So, for mm. example, would a dog really be eating artichokes? And would it really be eating <laughs> <laughs> the sources that we have of inulin? Chicory. <laughs> or what? What do dogs do? Yeah. What, what What does a dog do in in nature to mm. get prebiotic? And mm. they might be eating things like tree bark. Mm. Mm. They and so and one of the companies in in Canada, for example, is is looking at larch mm, okay. as a much more appropriate species appropriate prebiotic right. to use in 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 a mix in dogs, and okay. that makes absolute sense. I haven't me. even heard of so, that. What is larch? It's a tree. Okay. So it's a it's a it's a, a tree species, but it's one of the trees that if you look at dog behaviour that they will often seek out. Right. They'll often seek seek out the you know, the bark if they have the access to forestry of course, yep. where the larches are growing. So mm-hmm. it's just looking at what a dog would naturally do yeah. when it's trying to find its own prebiotic. Yeah. Because dogs will often when they've got an upset gut, the first thing they'll go for is they will try and find some form of fibre food. Yeah. Um, you know, they do it themselves. They know they need a prebiotic, so yeah. they'll go and find a, a, a fibre. And do you feel that so, that's why dogs eat grass? Because that's such a common question that comes up. Why do dogs uh, eat grass? <laughs> they eat grass for all sorts of different reasons, yeah. from, the, from, from purging to getting rid of parasites. So mm-hmm. all down to what kind of grass the dog is eating. Right. So is it looking okay. for a, gra- a, a hook-type grass, a, a, a couchy-type grass, that is there to ball up and, and, and cause irritation or to drag something through the gut? Mm-hmm. Or are they looking for um, like moss, lichen off barks? Are they looking for tips of grass? They're doing all sorts of different things with different types of grass. Wow. If you so start really looking carefully at what your yeah. dogs are, really, are up to at yeah. different times of the year. Yeah. So, yes, I do think some of the grass eating, not all of it, but some of the grass eating, especially when they're taking tips off things, can be about taking get, getting a bit of herbage fibre. Mm. So interesting. Gosh, it's a it's a lesson to uh, be a little more mindful and observant around our pets, isn't it? And really watch yeah, what they're doing always. and learn from them. <laughs> always. And try yeah. and get them out to the forest. Yeah, <laughs> you know, in try nature. Try and get them out into non-urban environments yeah. because... 
they, you know, we really, all of us, them and them and us, we are restricting so much our ability to help ourselves in urban environment. Yeah. And it's so it's it's get them out back into nature and then observe what they do when they can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because that's when they can really teach us some some good stuff. Yeah, I love it. I know that we're getting to sort of 45 <laughs> minutes now. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours, but I'm very conscious of your time. Uh, this has just been such a great conversation and really showing that the gut and particularly the health of the microbiome is should be absolutely at the foundation of of the treatment plan for every health condition. Yeah. Is there I anything so. else that you feel that you wish to share about this topic? Any sort of last tips that you want to leave practitioners and our listeners with well again again it's it's just not you know to 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 come away from the idea of of just a probiotic or we need a probiotic Mm -hmm. we need a prebiotic Mm -hmm. i want you know it's it's to get ourselves to be flexible Mm -hmm. open-minded and understand the complexity and honor the complexity of nature yeah Complexity is everything. It's diversity in food, diversity of the rainbow eating, even yeah. with our animals. You know, it, it's it's honouring complexity. Yeah, we have a tendency as humans to want to simplify everything. Yeah, rituals and routines. And, <laughs> yeah, and we have to just get back to accepting that complex is okay. Mm. Complex is good. It just stretches us a little bit. Yeah, but. We're supposed to be. Yeah, I love it. And particularly the microbiome would probably like that too, (laughs) rather than having (laughs) the same thing every day. (laughs) Yes, yes. Keep things interesting. Keep things interesting. Yeah. That would be the key phrase. Oh, thank you, Sue. I've I've really thoroughly enjoyed this chat. It's certainly a bit of a pet topic for me. Um, You could probably tell that I'm quite excited (laughs) by it. (laughs) Just before we go, would you like to let us know your contact details, where people can maybe reach out to you or find more out about your work and um, where you practice? Sure, yeah. I, uh, two two websites, mm-hmm. www.thetrueanimalplan.com, mm-hmm. yep. which is um, a, a, a platform that I have where we're discussing integrative medicine. And um, again, www.individualis.co.uk. Those are my okay. two websites. And of course, on Facebook and social media as well. Awesome. Again, I've really thoroughly enjoyed everything about today's conversation. Maybe we can have you back again one day because I feel like there's plenty more that we can chat about. But I won't keep you any longer today. Um, you need you need to start your Friday and we need to start our weekend over here. <laughs> so uh, I will Thanks. speak to you soon and uh, really appreciate the time. That's great. Thank you very much. This was the Pure Animal Podcast and I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. If you enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to give us a rating and review on iTunes.